Hello, Gushing Bonus. I'm so excited to be bringing you episode 25 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of... Central Americans. On this episode, I was super excited to recreate a roundtable that happened at the Law and Society Conference this past year, this summer in Portugal, in Lisbon. And I was super excited to have criminal defense lawyer Laura Barrera and law professors Paulina Vera, Valeria Gomez, and Arlene Amarante join to discuss what they presented at the roundtable at the conference, which is this idea about procedural subjugation and how it shows up in immigration law. They share why immigration lawyers are more likely to critique the system that they work within as compared to other lawyers, how procedure is utilized as justification for cruelty to migrants, and share their journeys into and out of legal academia. This was an amazing episode, and I hope that you all enjoy it. I am very excited to share that Radio Cachimbona is being featured by Apple Podcasts for Latina Heritage Month, that this will be featured in the TBH collection until October 15th. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Please take a look. Uh, Also feel free to share an Apple podcast reading and review um, because those are the kind of things that literally help with gaining the eyes of the Apple podcast editors to feature podcasts like this one on their Latina Heritage Collection And thank you to the anonymous person who left a five-star review most recently. Thank you so, so much. I literally notice every single rating and review. That's how I know that there was one additional one this past week. So thank you to you, anonymous rater. Another most amazing, most important, most appreciated way of supporting the podcast is by becoming a patron. For five to ten dollars a month, you can get early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats with fierce women of color. I just finished reading Custer Died for Your Sins by Vine Deloria Jr. with Magna Sridhar, and I'm super excited for you guys to listen to that. You can also continue the conversations that you pick up on the podcast and social media. Follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to share why you love the podcast there. And also, now that I'm a legal journalist full-time, you can also read my articles for Balls and Strikes, leftist site about the Supreme Court on Twitter, uh, at Yvette Borja AZ is where I keep all of my writings for that and where I share podcast stuff. So do follow there as well. And I hope that you all enjoy this roundtable.
Hello, Kachimonas. Today, I am really excited to talk about the procedural subjugation that occurs in immigration deportation proceedings and kind of in immigration law more broad. Um, but before getting more into that topic, I wanted to introduce everybody that is joining today for what is like a virtual roundtable of this presentation. So First, I wanted to introduce Laura Barrera. Laura is a deportation defense attorney and last year was a visiting assistant clinical professor of law at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law, where she established and directed a new immigration clinic. And also joining is Paulina Vera, who supervises the George Washington Law Immigration Clinic students and provides a law presentation to asylum seekers and respondents facing deportation in immigration court. She is a professorial lecturer in law and has previously taught immigration law. Paulina has previously served as the only immigration staff attorney at the Maryland-based nonprofit CASA. She's a double... GW alumna. In 2015, she graduated from the George Washington University Law School. While there, she was a student attorney in the immigration clinic. And in 2012, she graduated from GW with a Bachelor in Arts in International Affairs. She is involved in a number of professional organizations, is a board member for the Hispanic Bar Association of DC and the HBA DC Foundation. And she's also the co-chair of the Immigrant Legal Defense Fund of the Hispanic National Bar Association. She is a 2022 scholar for the ABA's YLD Leadership Academy, which is a two-year leadership training program for traditionally underrepresented attorneys. Her passion project is managing an online community called Hermanas in the Law, where she features Latinas thinking about law school, Latina law students, and Latina lawyers. She's originally from Tucson and is the proud daughter of two immigrants. Also joining is Valeria Gomez, who is an assistant professor of law and the director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic at the University of Baltimore School of Law, where she teaches law students to represent community members in matters involving asylum and other humanitarian immigration matters. Before joining Ubalt Law, Gomez taught in the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic at the University of Connecticut School of Law, at the Immigration Clinic at the University of Tennessee College of Law as well. Her practice experience includes representing immigrant children in removal proceedings at Volunteer Immigrant Defense Advocates, a nonprofit legal services organization that she co-founded in Knoxville, Tennessee, and practicing employment law for two years in Nashville. And finally, also joining is Arlene Amarante, who is an assistant professor of law at Lincoln Memorial University. Among other things, she teaches immigration law, asylum, and critical race theory. And um, so, yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, for joining today. I really appreciate having such an esteemed group of Latinas here to talk uh, on the podcast about this issue. Yeah, those bios, I'm like, damn, we're impressive. (laughs) (laughs) I know, for real. Um, so this is, a, I want to start with just a few questions for everybody about your journey into legal academia. When did you all know that you wanted to be a law professor? Honestly, for me, it was a complete accident. I never thought that I was going to be part of legal academia. In fact, if you had told me in law school that this is where I was going to end up, I probably would have laughed just because I didn't, I couldn't imagine that there would be a place for me in legal academia. Um, It wasn't like an option that was presented to me in law school as a career path. 
I didn't really have anyone telling me, you know, like you should think about doing this in the future. And so um, I started actually on the nonprofit track and, you know, learned a lot there, good and bad, right? And so when this position opened up, I thought back to when my happiest times were in law school, which were few and far between. And I would definitely say my clinical experience was when I was happiest in law school, um, because I actually got to work with, you know, real clients, actually you know, learn and apply my skills outside of just like a very esoteric law school classroom. And so I decided to take on this role and I've been doing it since 2017 now. So here I am and here I, here I remain. Yeah, I love that. I, I did notice that is every, everyone is a clinical professor, right? Except for myself. Um, no, that's that was my intention. Okay, and, okay, and I guess okay. maybe that's a good segue to kind of tell you about how I got started. Um, and yes. so this was around 2014, where I found myself in a situation where I needed to teach myself and others how to practice asylum law. And so I just sort of like found myself breaking that down for myself and recognizing that there was really no pipeline to develop more asylum attorneys and also that there was an urgent need to create one. Uh, and so I, it was just sort of like one of those situations where you look around and you're like, how come no one is doing? Oh, right. Maybe it's because I'm the one who's supposed to be right doing this. And so I did not intending necessarily to enter legal academia because like Paulina, I didn't see myself in academia. You know, I didn't go to a top law school and I didn't, I don't have the resume that you uh, might need uh, to, to be a professor in a traditional legal setting. So I just was satisfied uh, with, you know, continuing to develop this pipeline and I guess just sort of one thing led to the next. And before you know it, I ended up at a clinic and I was working with Laura Barrera, who was one of the very first clinicians there sort of with me in this project uh, at UNLV. And so I started at the clinic and I wish that I could continue in the clinic, but uh, now I just sort of do it uh, on the side and it is just as rewarding. And so, yeah, I'll let my colleagues explain how they got in. Yeah, my path was actually really similar to a lot of what we've heard and particularly similar to Paulina's, I think. I definitely also didn't see myself as a law professor. I was going to be happy if I made it out of law school, I think, uh, was how I sort of viewed it. And I thought it was kind of amazing that I was even in law school. The way that I sort of started thinking about teaching and the fact that it was even a possibility was actually a former clinical professor of mine who had taught me while I was in law school who kept opening doors for me to present in front of like legal organizations and lawyers. And then eventually there was a fellowship that opened up for sort of like a lecture and a staff attorney. And she brought me on. And so we co-taught at the University of Tennessee together. I think the idea of sort of building pipelines, but also looking out for people and opening doors is so important because I just would have never, you know, I didn't go to an elite school that sort of primes you for this sort of thing. Um, and a lot of the elite schools do. So I found myself going from big fancy law firm doing employment law, not really being happy with what I was doing. Someone opened a door for me and I transitioned into teaching and nonprofit. And after that, I did a fellowship that sort of just taught me not just like how to be a clinical professor, but also like the culture of academia, which is this wild, bizarre thing that is kind of its own beast. And I mean, it definitely has some negatives for sure. But I think like the idea of being able to be somebody like the professor that was my professor that opened my doors was a black woman. I think just 
I mean, I, I think I'm good at my job, <laughs> but um, I needed someone else to think that I would be good at my job, I think, to be able to take that leap. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. And I hope to be that too. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that can't be an award, the favorite. <laughs> well, I think your students also think you're great, right, Valeria? Because didn't you win the student award? For like I, best new professor or like their favorite. I don't. I was a I was a runner up, but I didn't actually win the award. But it was <laughs> it was an honor to be nominated. Oh, well, they obviously still love you if you are the runner up. <laughs> I guess my path was also similar. I also didn't go to like an Ivy League law school. Uh, I went to Wayne State in Detroit, which is a regional law school in Michigan. And then I got a Justice AmeriCorps fellowship that happened to be at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas and the immigration clinic. So I think like that was like my first working experience was being in an immigration clinic, which I also had had taken in law school, but this was, it was totally different. They had such a higher caseload. So it was much more like being, it was much more like a law practice, but like had a lot of the benefits of like being in a law school. So there was a lot of, um, there's a lower caseload than at nonprofits, but, um, you know, still a good amount of cases to learn, but like not feeling super overwhelmed, but definitely a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> so I think like, I really liked that. And coming out of law school, it was kind of comfortable to be in a law school environment, I think. And, you know, it really, I saw like my boss's job, um, who was the clinical director and a professor And I remember thinking like, that seems really cool, you know, like seeing him like go out of town for the whole summer and like, you know, write law review articles like in Greece or whatever. Um, And then I went on to like, I wanted to get more experience in nonprofits. So I went on to a bigger nonprofit. It's actually where I met Yvette. (laughs) I think then, you know, I had thought like I wanted to go back to that. So when I saw that Ohio State was hiring a visiting professor to establish a new immigration clinic, I was excited to apply for that opportunity. And, you know, like I'm from that part of the country and be kind of close to home. So there's a lot of reasons I was excited and just to get back into clinical teaching and have that opportunity to run my own clinic was really exciting, especially because I had been told, you know, that I couldn't do it. Like, not even just like, like everyone is saying, like, we, if we don't go to Ivy leagues, like no one's ever telling us like that this is something you can even think about doing. Um, and I actually was told once by a professor, I think I've told some of you this cause I'm still really salty about it, but I was told once that if I wanted to be a professor, I should get an LLM because I needed to wash off me the fact that I went to Wayne state. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'd been told I couldn't do that, but I was really excited when I got that job and there was a lot of great stuff. Like I really enjoyed working with students. I guess I didn't say that I had co-taught at UNLV. So I had done some of that working with students, working with clients. I like the public education aspect of legal academia. I love the community outreach aspect of being a clinical professor, but I did ultimately decide it wasn't for me. And I think that's something like, I don't know. I don't know if anyone finds that helpful to hear, but I think it's also something to say like, okay, like when you get to this place that people told you you could never get to, and there's not a lot of other people like you and you're like, wow, I did it. Like I'm here. It's really hard to be like, actually, I don't want to be here. That's such a good point, but that's a really important one. You didn't work so hard to be unhappy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And to be, and you know, you feel, you do feel a little bit of guilt of like, you know, I did meet with some, you know, different Latino, Latina law students, not law students, um, undergraduates, you know, who 
were referred to me by like, because they want to go to law school. And someone was like, oh, you should talk to her. And it's really cool to be there and to be that. And it feels bad to step out of that, especially I was the only Latino professor at Ohio State at the law school. So, you know, like that, it's sad, but it's also like, okay, just because it was unlikely for me to get here and I had to work really hard doesn't mean I should stay here if I don't like it. So maybe in the future I'll go back, but like I did decide it wasn't for me and I prefer to be in practice. So that was my path to get there. And then my path out. (laughs) I do kind of want to point out one thing, which is that most of us got into it through a a practice-based path. So clinical teaching where you are managing cases or like teaching lawyering skills. And I think it's interesting because at many institutions, definitely not across the board, but at many institutions, those types of professors are sort of considered second tier. And so the types of resumes that they'll or CVs that they'll even consider and the type of like quote unquote polish that they're expecting from and polish just being a code word for like, you know, the culture and you can present white, I think, but are different. Um, And I think like being completely honest at this point in my career, career, if I were to try to get a tenure track job that did not involve clinical teaching, I don't know that my CV would be looked at the same way. In fact, I know that it would not be looked at the same way. Perhaps one advantage to going in through the clinical track is that I think you prove yourself in a really different way when you're a clinical professor. And so you kind of like walk in maybe with lower expectations. Unfortunately, that means that more is demanded of you, I think. But when it's an academic position that doesn't involve proving practice and proving being good at at like actual casework, which is what the other part of what we're trained to do in law school, I would argue the biggest thing that we're trained to do in law school because we are a trained school. It's super elitist. And so, I mean, I think that's, I hate the idea that if I didn't want to be a clinical professor and if I didn't, like right now I'm an institution that really respects clinical instruction. So there's parity between all of the different types of professors, which is uncommon. So I think I could build myself up that way now, but otherwise I, I didn't go to an elite school. I went to a public school in Tennessee that alone, I'm not sure would open doors for me regardless of what was behind me in the CV. So I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I think I love clinical instruction and that's what I would do if I had any options anyway. So like jokes on you guys, I guess. I mean, that's kind of a reality is the the door was opened through a path that wasn't necessarily as well-respected, at least in like previous positions that I've had. And then I had to prove up that I could do it because, you know, I think for so many of us, once you open the door and give us a shot, we'll really impress you. But if the door is is closed really tightly because you're expecting a certain type of, of background, that door is going to be hard to close. That's why I think it's so important for Latinas to be in every aspect of the of the profession, including in the academy, because we know what lie, might lie behind that door if he would just look. Um, but I think it's it's so ingrained in the academy that it's hard to do. This is like kind of bleak, but then also kind of hopeful. Like I have heard people say that, you know, like Latinas are actually needed everywhere. (laughs) So like just whatever you're inspired to do and like whatever like lights a fire in you is actually what you should go do because literally every field needs more Latinas. 
you know, so it's like kind of bleak, but kind of hopeful. I don't know. I, I did kind of like, I felt comfort in that because yeah, I, I, like in law school, I, I did feel, I don't know. I felt pressured to like go down certain routes because, oh, like there's like, there's so few Latinos who do clerkships and like, I just really didn't want to do a clerkship, but we do not need to get into that right now. <laughs> I did not do the clerkship because I have free will and autonomy. So I really appreciate a lot of you sharing like that you left. Um, I think that's really important because it's really courageous act to, like you said, you know, have done this thing that you thought you wanted to do for a long time. And like kind of in spite of all these obstacles, I think that's really brave. But I did also want to ask the rest of y'all what advice you would give to a woman of color who is interested in legal academia. I'm trying to find the book on my bookshelf. I think, I believe it's called Unequal Profession by Professor Mira Dio from, um, oh my goodness, of course, uh, her school is escaping, her institution is escaping me right now. But um, I found that book to be tremendously helpful because I'm actually sort of at a point right now where I'm trying to decide, you know, is academia going to be for me long term? And what does that look like? Because I'm not currently tenure track. And so, you know, kind of making hard decisions there. And so, you know, in, making that decision, I've been trying to do more research, you know, talk to folks, understand their past. And this book in particular, I thought was very eye opening, because um, she does surveys, um, anonymously, but of women in academia, but then also focuses particularly on women of color in academia, and what their experiences have been like. And she talks about pretty much every aspect from like the job talk to scholarship to tenure track to, you know, the private conversations that the faculty have in hiring and, you know, how those, those aren't public, those aren't made public, but a lot of really, you know, misogynistic, racist things, unfortunately, can be said in those faculty meetings, even if it's sort of more insidious, like, for example, you know, saying a black woman clearly can't, doesn't have classroom management skills because um, her evaluations like reflect poorly on her, not understanding that Student evaluations can be very biased based off of, you know, uh, someone's traits. And so I found that to be very eye opening. So I think anyone who's thinking about going into legal academia should also just get a lot of information about what it is that they're getting themselves into, especially if they do come from a marginalized community, um, because while we are definitely needed, and um, the reason I stick around is because I I do do it for my students and I, I do it for my clients, but it's not like easy peasy, you know, it's not, you're not always going to have the best time. Actually, Yvette and I did a whole podcast episode about um, racism in the, in legal academia. So check that out. But, you know, there can be a lot of, you know, microaggressions um, being made to feel unwelcome and things like that. And so I always think with any experience, really, it's always good to go into it, having that information ahead of time and understanding what it is that you're getting yourself into, because, Again, I fell into this accidentally. And so I feel like a lot of the learning I'm doing is just by doing (laughs) and not so much because I was really like informed ahead of time. So I would definitely recommend not doing that. Um, And a lot of the women in the book, actually, same thing. They sort of fell into it and learned along the way. And so information sharing, I'm all I'm all about that. Yeah, I would say too, like to Laura's point, make it known that that's something that you are actually aspiring to. And maybe even before you go to law school, because honestly, I I would have probably made different decisions if I knew from the outset that I wanted to be a law professor as to like what I did in law school, where I went to law school, 
what I did after I graduated. Because the things that you think make sense, like, oh, I should have a lot of practice experience. Surely that's what's really respected in legal academia. Not really. So, so a lot of it is intuitive, I think, or at least wasn't intuitive to me because I didn't know anyone in the field. So if to Laura's point, I mean, I, I hadn't thought that that was something that was even out there for me. But if I had, I don't know that I would have had like the self-confidence to just go up to people and say, hey, I'm thinking about going to, to like be a law professor. Can you give me advice? You know, go to like other professors. Like you give me advice as to, can I call you when I have questions about enrollment? Or like just off the bat, are there some things I should be thinking about right now? Because I don't even know what I don't know. And I think you'll find that like most professors Nobody goes to their student hours and they would actually like love for you to come in and be like, question mark, I don't know what's going on. Some people won't, but you can ask around and eventually, especially your peers, you'll figure out who the safe professors are, who will actually like take a lot of happiness and just orienting you and getting you used to like the norms and the culture and what are what is valued and what isn't. Even to your point, like clerkships were never on my radar. And then when I finally started teaching, I looked at all my other colleagues, I was like, oh. This is why people do. <laughs> so just make it known and put it out into the universe and that will help attract itself. I think just one tiny thing to add to all of these great points is that we find ourselves, I guess. So the question was, what would we tell newcomers, right? Yeah, that was the question. <laughs> right. So or people who, you know, they're interested. They're like they are. They know about legal academia and how much it sucks because they listen to me and Paulina's discussion and they listen to this and they're like, I'm still down. What advice would you give these interesting folks? Right. So, I mean, I think that the main point I want to emphasize is that there is a difference sort of between like practice and then like the, I guess the other track would be like academic in terms of publications. And so either you must have an impressive list of publications or, you know, practice experience. And if you have both, then, you know, that's fantastic. That is probably the best way that you can uh, set yourself up to do that. Okay, great. So now in practice, what does it actually look like, right? Like to uh, come up with these publications when you're like a full-time practicing attorney is like not super easy or intuitive, right? There are a number of conferences that uh, one can go to that will help you, but you know, the gatherings are uh, themselves expensive and and irregular. And so anyway, it, it is not a clear cut path uh, if you don't have a lot of time uh, or a lot of money. Um, And so that is, you know, not surprising, but one of the many reasons why folks uh, of color uh, are, are kept out of that market. I would just add, you know, reach out to people because there are people will be willing to like share information with you, like to support you. Like there are different groups that go on to like help people prepare for job talks and things like that. Like I would not have even known what a job talk was. So if anyone listening is like, what's a job talk? It's like a day long interview you have. And part of it is like a presentation and there are people who will help you. So like, feel free to reach out to any like random Latina professors like us. You can reach out to us. I think I'm just volunteering everybody. (laughs) That's okay. But like people will help you. Like, I feel like as a professor, I saw students reaching out to me and to other professors. And I was always like, I wish I did that. I was so scared to reach out to anybody for any help on anything. I didn't even know how to ask for help or what help I was asking for, you know? So like, just reach out because there is help. And I wish I had done that. It can help. It can like really do a lot for preparing you for like having those, like that network that will help you hear about jobs you might want. 
And then I would also say like, be prepared that like, it often involves a lot of moving actually in the beginning of your academic career. That's another thing like I couldn't get down with. Like, I don't want to be, I mean, I moved three times the last five years to different states. So I was kind of like done with it, but a lot of times there's moving, like, you know, you can't get the job or you can't get the pay you want or the title you want at the institution you're at. And like, you kind of learn the only way to get it is to like threaten to move to a different school or to actually move to a different institution to get that pay that you wanted or that title that you wanted and deserve. So, you know, people move around a lot. And for me that, you know, I don't like feeling that isolated. And so that's something to think about too, is like, do you, do you want to go on the market to just get a job wherever you can get a job? Or do you have a certain place you want to live and like look for jobs in that city? Um, you know, they will come up eventually. So that that's something to think about too, because it can be really isolating. It is a ton of work. I don't think I, I think when I was a, like an AmeriCorps fellow, like it was a lot of work, of course, as a practicing attorney, but I think like it was a little bit less work. And then you know, I was in a nonprofit where I was working more and then I was a managing attorney. I was working more. And then I thought when I went back to clinical teaching, maybe it would be less, but I don't think I've ever worked more. Like I was working so much, like 60 hours a week, probably like I, cause it was so much lesson planning. And then also like the student meetings and also managing community contacts and also trying to publish things like our Lenny was just talking about, like it's so much. So it can be really rewarding if that's, if you like all that stuff, but don't look at it. In my opinion, you shouldn't look at it as a thing of like, oh, this is going to be easier than practice. For some people it is, you know, it depends on what your strengths are, what you like. But for me, it was not because it was just like, I've never worked more in my life. (laughs) So there's something to keep in mind. You know what though? I am going to give a shout out to the Supreme Latina Justice Sotomayor because she did not do a clerkship. And you know where she ended up? The Supreme Court. Okay, so Yvette didn't do a clerkship and she's just going to be fine. Absolutely fine. <laughs> Yvette, if I could just add another point. Yeah. I want to just underscore that scholarship is weighed really heavily in academia. Yeah, um, And so that's something else that like now... You know, I've been doing this for a while, but now because I'm considering like going into like looking at tenure track positions, that is something that's completely missing from my CV. And so like to Valeria's point, like I have a lot of service and like, I know I can kill it in the courtroom. I know I can build rapport with my clients, but it's like, I'm not published. So like, I'm not, you know, considered hireable (laughs) for a lot of these positions. And I'm going through like tremendous imposter syndrome, like trying to write my first article because I'm like, why would anyone care about what I have to say? Is it academically rigorous enough? Like what, you know, how is this going to be viewed by other people in the profession? And so I guess going back to Melody's other point, like had I known I was going to go into this profession, I probably would have tackled scholarship a little bit earlier on in my career. And so now I'm, you know, like seven years out of law school and I'm like, oh my goodness, like I have to go back and, you know, actually like think about like blue book citations and things like that. And, you know, I practice in immigration courts so are our, our site's a little loosey goosey, but, um, but now that's, like, for the, like, that's for the law students, Paulina. Yeah. That's for the law students. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I did have to do that for people. So I'm going to reveal, reveal the curtain. Structuring of my art, like just things that, if I were like fresher out of law school, I think I would have been more in that mindset. 
And now I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is not all the type of writing I'm used to doing anymore. So if you think you have an inkling that you might go into legal academia, like start focusing on publishing like as soon as possible. That's just going to help you so much more. I know. We, I wish. Yeah. I think part of that is like law review too. And I hate to say it, but yeah, I, if I had known I wanted to go into legal academia, I would have gone into law review. I mean, I, I did like a journal, like the least amount of participation possible just to say that I had, but oh, damn, it would have helped. And I can't, I just can't believe it, but it would have. <laughs> I want to set up writing accountability sessions with you, Paulina, because I know that I need to write and I just, I just do everything but write. <laughs> well, a law review article specifically, because I write actually for <laughs> my profession now. But uh, that style of writing is just really different than a law review. It, it is like, it is a particular kind of writing. It's very boring to to be frank and um it's just it's hard to get into but yeah i i do double down on that point that publication is really important like that is what i've been told like you need to get published so it's quite important there's like this like very difficult thing you have to do like a okay i can't even explain it because i can try and do it but you there's like an there is like a backdoor way to get onto law review which is like if you get published in the law review then you can become a law review editor and I always thought that was a cool way to do it and if I had done it that's how I would have done it and also you can do you can like participate in a journal and do stuff that you're actually interested in like I was a submissions editor for the civil rights and civil liberties journal and like, I loved it. It was like ACLU lawyers and like impact litigators and like people who are trying to like really think about what civil rights law means, like what its promise is. It doesn't have to be like so drab and sad. <laughs> um, okay, so thank you all for that so much. I think that was all really, really helpful info. So, okay, we are talking today about procedural subjugation. So to get into it, can you all define what that is maybe one person can define it and then other people can give an example of how they've seen it in their practice or their research i think valeria should define it because she brought the article to our attention or rather the excerpt of the book to our attention that discussed this so i'm gonna i'm gonna volunteer valeria awesome <laughs> i i just got called on no, that's okay. Well, procedural subjugation without getting like too in the weeds is basically uh the way that the state can through like procedures and through the different processes that it puts in place for being able to access like benefits and rights um, actually serve to subjugate and to control people that are trying to navigate through that system. So it's it's a kind of, you know, state violence in so far as there isn't necessarily an overt subjugation of like separating people between classes, but by the time and the ways in which the diff the system works, through working through the system, the system itself, through its procedures, serves to subjugate a different group of people. And so, you know, I think we all work in immigration and we've talked about just the million ways in which the immigration system and processes serve through its procedures to subjugate the people that have to appear before it. And, and I think if I can just jump in here, what really would help are the illustrations. And so there are so many in different areas, but as I mentioned, my 
area that brought me into academia was asylum law. And so just sort of looking specifically at that, if you consider that when somebody comes through the border, they have to explain why they are fleeing their country and why they deserve protection, it would be great if everyone were treated, you know, equally or that it mattered, right, why they, they are coming to the United States. But in fact, it really doesn't. And so we see that in a number of different ways based on the disparate outcomes that people have based on why they're fleeing, based on their country of origin. Origin. And so like a lot of this is like based on public perceptions. But then the problem is that after this system has been in place for so many years, it just becomes normalized. And then we just see the accumulation of bodies across the border as a completely natural element of the border. And so an example, then if we're sort of still like at the U.S. southern border where this happened to uh, one of my clients uh, and their family is a family from Guatemala coming in, family of six, and they enter and they they asked for asylum. This was during the time of MPP, and this was uh, the uh, migrant protection protocols. So what was happening uh, at the time, and it may still be happening, but I digress, was that the family was kicked back out to Mexico to wait for their hearing to come up in the U.S. And so they waited in Mexico for a year. And then they, the family came into the U.S. The father and the son were not allowed to cross because it appears they had tried to cross previously. And so, you know, they had a, a different sort of like immigration history than the rest of the family. So they were left behind at the Mexico-U.S. border. And then there was this daughter who was over the age of 18 and a, a mom and two kids who were under the age of 18. And the mom and the two kids were sent off to live in Knoxville, where I live and where I met them. However, the daughter who was over the age of 18 was separated from the rest of her family and incarcerated and she remained there for over a year. And all of this when there was no reason to hold her in the first place because the judge terminated the proceedings. And once we tried to get them to release her, that was like a whole other mess and we needed to file a habeas. Uh, eventually that's what got her released a year later. And so this to me is, is an example of procedural subjugation because there was no way to uh, release my client, legally speaking, because of the manner in which she had entered. And so that's really just all procedure, but also just think about how ridiculous it is that we have these uh, members of one family with three different outcomes and it's sort of like just based on their positionality, right? And so like our country just took them in, separated them, essentially chewed them out and made them suffer. And, you know, there's no recompense really for for what happened to to this family it's just sort of something that happens as a matter of course this is the system that we have like that is an, that's not an example of how the system is broken that's an example of how the system is working as it is intended to yeah i think one of the things that that sort of that we've worked together when we've talked about this is we all kind of gave different examples through different perspectives one of the things that i've focused on is you know, the fact that like the immigration court system, when you're brought to immigration court, the consequences are super severe, right? Basically banishment, exile. And then that it might lead to death depending on your circumstances for, for coming to the United States in the first place. And yet in a system that has such harsh consequences, it's incredibly inflexible, it's very regimented. And something as simple as missing a hearing for whatever reason can lead to you being automatically in your absence ordered deported, which then opens you up for detention, assuming you weren't detained in the first place, 
and then subject to being caught and sent back. And those things are really hard. Like those in your absence removal orders are really hard to overturn because they're limited in a number of ways. And and it's, it's everything, by the way, very formal procedural is another thing that makes it difficult for people without access to attorneys to sort of navigate their way through because the system itself isn't really set up in a way that is flexible enough taking into consideration how many groups of people, how many different groups of people find themselves going through the immigration court system. And yet, even though like making it to your appointment is really important, uh, making it to your court hearing is really important, we put immigration courts, not it's not like a state court where you might go for a divorce where they might be one in every county or one in every region. Some people have to drive really far away to get to immigration courts. So someone who lives in Knoxville, where Atlanta lives, has to drive six to seven hours to make it to the immigration court. And that involves missing school, missing two days of work, maybe paying for a hotel if you have access to a bank account to make a reservation with a credit card. It involves driving through areas that may be dangerous to drive through, if only because you might live in a place that doesn't give you a driver's license. So you now are subject through a long drive in the middle of the night for a morning hearing in an area that might stop you and arrest you because you don't have access to a driver's license. It involves going sometimes through adverse weather because you go through literal different climate zones to get to your hearing. And there's really no recourse for that because that's where you get assigned to go. It's just kind of an absurd set of hoops that people are forced to go through to to make use of something that by law they're supposed to have access to, right? Like that day in court is something that Congress's law said that they have access to, but the way that they have to go about doing it is absolutely something that really subjugates people. And there are certain individuals who just can't make use of their day in court because it's the, the, the system has just made it so difficult to go through. And, you know, when the consequences are so stark and so severe, how can it be that a system is going to be so inflexible at the same time? You, you rarely see it in other areas. Yeah. I One question I have, though, is like, does this argument imply that we can one day get to a place where there is a fair deportation system? Like, are you saying that if we did have an immigration court in every county, uh, like we do with state courts, and there were ride vouchers to your deportation hearing, and the judge followed all the rules before they ordered you deported, would that still be procedural subjugation? Can I jump in? Because I feel like that kind of goes, we had, like, like everyone was saying, we all talked about different like aspects of this topic. And I think that sort of goes to the the piece that I talked about the most. And just to, this this is making me think about, well, just to give a little bit of context, I'm sure you'll probably do that, Yvette, but this panel we did was at the Law and Society Conference in Portugal. And um, our panel was chaired by Austin Coker, who's a legal geographer. Is that right? Okay. He's a legal geographer. Um, oh my God. What and- is that? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love to ask you can tell me about that later. Yeah. <laughs> So one thing that he said that I think really is a, is a good place to like jump into sort of the part that, that I was talking about a lot was he pointed out um, he's, he's worked in his research with a lot of immigration attorneys and immigration practitioners. And he said that immigration attorneys seem to be more willing than any other type of attorney to criticize immigration law. And he was asking us if we agree with that and if we think that there's anything, you know, is that encouraged in law school or in, in, in immigration clinics? To me, I think one of the reasons that talking about procedural subjugation is really important is that I think we are so open to critiquing the law. You know, like we, like immigration law, like many other types of law is racist, 
Like it just is. It's not, I don't think I need to explain that to your listeners. No, no, but yeah, but that's like, that is what the subjugation is, right? Is that it's like racist, that it's like arbitrary and racist. Well, it's not though. That's not, I think that, that it's important that that's not the only subjugation. Like, Mm. and I think for me, it's important to point out that, that there's two things going on. Like there's racist laws. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, Mm -hmm. we like, we have the Chinese exclusion act. We had, you know, we have the Muslim ban, which obviously is an executive order, but that's allowed and it's allowed by the law and it's allowed by the courts. Mm -hmm. And we have all these other things, um, all these like the basically like racist assumptions that, that courts are allowed to make. And that, you know, this is all okay because of, plenary power doctrines and you know yes. and you call that yes. out it's, it's like le- it's legitimating this racist like I feel like the procedural subjugation is the legitimating of the legal system with these doctrines like plenary power when it's like all you're saying is like I'll let Congress be racist <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, not is. my job to stop them yeah it's like the law not only is the law racist but the but but the procedures that people have to go through, whether that's through USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is where people go for the affirmative application for immigration benefits, or if you're in immigration court, or if you're talking about immigration enforcement, whether it's at the border or by ICE in the interior of the country, um, this whole process, like all these procedures, subjugate people at every step of the way. And the reason that that I was thinking a lot about that, because I actually, I had suggested this panel, you know, to everybody, both because I wanted to go to Portugal <laughs> with all my friends, and also because, also because I think, you know, I was thinking so much about this because I was starting a new clinic. So I was planning, you know, there was no syllabus to go on. I was really thinking a lot about like, how do I teach this, you know, all of the things that I've learned through practice and, and through my clients, you know, educating me about their own experience going through the process. How do I teach that? And, and why is it important that I teach that? Those were questions. And is it important? You know, those are questions I was asking myself because a lot of clinics do just teach, like, it's like skills, right? It's like a trade school. Like, this is how you fill out an application for asylum. But, you know, I was thinking about the things that I've learned that I think are so important and so fundamental to minimizing the harm that we do as attorneys, as people who are part of the process, you know, we're part of that procedure. We prep our clients for court. We go to court with them. We, we do so many, so many pieces of the procedure are things that we do. And, you know, how do I, how do I explain that to students, you know, and this was a story I told at the panel that I'll share again, that was just this experience I had preparing a client for an asylum merits hearing in immigration court And I was preparing him to, you know, like for people who are asylum law practitioners, we know like if you go back, you know, they want to know like, okay, why can't you go back to your country? What would happen if those people who you're afraid of found you again? What would happen? You know, like they always want you to prove that, like that you wouldn't be okay. So we were preparing and I had explained everything a lot, why we were doing what we're doing. and, And I said, okay, so if the people who have hurt you before, you know, if they found you again and and said, this was a forced trafficking case, a forced labor case, said, you have to work for us again. What would you do? And he just like looked at me and was like, do they want me to say I would die? And I was just like, I, it really made me think. And it was like, yeah, they do. That is what they want you to say, you know? And it made me think a lot about like, what it's like, and I've had clients ask me that too, where they're like, what would you do? you know, and we don't have to ask ourselves that very much. And I feel like I'm really thankful for the ways that my clients have educated me on that. And I felt 
Like it would be irresponsible of me to teach students in a way that doesn't incorporate some of those things that I've learned about the way that it's not just the law, it's also the procedure. So as much as we can like talk shit about the law and we can, you know, be really progressive attorneys and be like, the law is racist, you know, like it's not just that it's also, it's every single step of the process. And so I think it's a really important conversation because I think to what you were just saying that, so there's a lot of advocacy from immigrant advocates, especially attorneys about like, okay, we need to increase access to immigration courts. We need to increase, you know, universal representation in immigration court. We need to have independent courts. But I think that that is, I don't think more procedure is ever going to be the answer or the solution to anything when it comes to like violations of immigrant rights that happen all the time that are like fundamental and essential to our current system. Like people's rights are violated. People are subjugated and more procedure is never going to, in my opinion, like be any type of solution. And so I think also like, you know, as lawyers, it's easy to conceptualize solutions to problems about people's rights being violated as more lawyers, you know, like more court and more lawyers is going to fix the problem, but like, it doesn't, I don't think that'll ever fix the problem. And I think we need to, we need to like shift our understanding from just the law is racist. If that's where we're even starting at to the procedure itself is also harmful, you know, and there are ways to like, I think there are ways to minimize the harm that we do and we should all be mindful of that. But we need to acknowledge that the procedure itself that we participate in and that we're in law schools, that we're in clinics, that we're training students to participate in and we're allowing them to participate in, that those are harmful. And so I think that that was like, I was really in my head about all this as I was planning the new clinic. And, and so it was really cool, um, you know, to have, have this panel and talk with everybody about all the different ways that procedural subjugation is present in we called it in United States immigration adjudications, you know, like just, just all the ways that we see that. So I guess I can talk about what my piece of the panel was, which was specifically about USCIS. Um, And this is actually what I'm attempting to write about first from a due process lens, but I would like to do like a second article that focuses a little bit more on the procedural subjugation, that terminology and applying it to USCIS. But I think it's relevant to this conversation because as a practitioner, it feels like you often file an affirmative application and it kind of just goes into a black hole. Like you don't get any sort of update or notice or anything about the case, not even really months, like years now at this point. And it's like the delays are so crazy. And I've also been seeing like at the clinic and then hearing from other practitioners, like there's really been an uptick recently of erroneous like denials of like filing of application, like rejected filings. And when there's like actually nothing wrong, you know, I I talk in my article about there was like one application for a work permit renewal, which is very important to our clients, right? Their ability to be able to work lawfully in the United States, support their family. In this case, he has three young children under the age of 13 that he's supporting. And they rejected the filing. And it was like me, my boss, and like a student all looking at it. We're like, what is wrong with this application? There was nothing wrong with the application. So we sent it back with like a cover letter, like, you know, bold letters, super like requesting supervisor review, like there's nothing wrong with this application. And then it got accepted, you know, and then it was properly filed. So I've been seeing a lot of that. And I've also been seeing a lot of requests for evidence. So basically in, in with USCIS, um, if they feel like there's some information missing that they need in order to make a final decision on your case, they issue something called a, a request for evidence or an RFE because 
you know, we love our acronyms in immigration law. And so these RFEs um, I've been seeing recently are for things that I've already submitted in the application. And it's not just one case. This has like been happening in multiple cases that we have before the clinic. And so I literally have been writing letters back that's like, here's a document again, but also see tab, you know, see in my initial filing that already had it in there, you know, and that just like further delays the process. And it's a waste of everyone's time and energy that I have to respond. And there's always the fear that if I don't respond, it'll be erroneously denied. And then I have to deal with that, you know. And so there are processes in place at USCIS, but they almost feel farcical. Like, I feel like just because of how many errors are created by the government and how many delays are created by the government, it just makes this process go on much longer than it needs to. And meanwhile, my clients are what they're in, what I like to call the limbo stage. You know, they're just not knowing if they're going to have the ability to you know, continue working or stay in the United States with their family or in the future, you know, have their family be reunited with them. And so that causes them a lot of mental like stress. And obviously that makes sense, right? You know, having that weighing over your head while your life is continuing on in the United States. And on top of that, like I had a client who's like waiting forever for a VAWA application. Her dad died in her home country. You know, while that happened, she wasn't able to go back and like go to the funeral or or be with him or whatever, just because of the procedural posture she was in. And it's, it's just sad to me, you know, that there are real human costs to this. And it feels very callous on the part of the government that they're just sort of treated like another application and not like a real person is behind the application. And so yeah, I think like, we definitely see procedural subjugation across the board with immigration adjudication, but USCIS is no different, even though, like I said, they have these procedures in place. It's, it's farcical. And it's also like you can't get any sort of meaningful updates on your case too throughout the process. And that's something else I talked about on the panel. You can try to call the hotline. You There's like a joke amongst immigration attorneys, which is like actually not a funny joke, but it's like you have to have the magical word to get an actual real life human representative, which by the way, currently is InfoPass. So if you say InfoPass, you can maybe talk to a human at some point, but they barely give you any information. It's information you can get online from the online case status update. You know, you can try to reach out to the ombudsman's office. You can try to reach out to a congressional office, but oftentimes these things don't really move your case along either. It's sort of hit or miss of whether or not that's effective. And so actually track at Syracuse did a really interesting study recently looking at the uptick in mandamus actions against USCIS. And it's sad that in our system, often suing the government or the threat of suing the government is more effective than actually just trying to get a case status update, you know, via the other channels that are available. And so I, I don't know, to me, it's just it's very frustrating as a practitioner. And that's not even that's for folks who are represented. Imagine do, doing this, like going through this pro se you know, trying to figure, navigate this labyrinth of different systems to get any sort of update on your case. Or actually, there was a gentleman, I write about this in my article too. There's a gentleman who is no longer working with the clinic, but he's been experiencing the RFE thing where he keeps getting erroneously issued RFEs. And he's like, I already submitted my medical examination. Why are they asking for my medical examination again? And he's like, if I don't answer, like, am I going to get in trouble? And, you know, he's really stressed out about it again, rightfully so. And so, it's it's frustrating for me as someone, you know, who's practices immigration law. And I can only imagine the amount of stress that pro se applicants are going through trying to navigate 
these procedures. Yeah, it's really important like to bring these points up to the people who are holding on to the I immigrated here the right way or I waited my place in line, that narrative, because the backlogs are so bad that people are waiting like five, six, seven years to hear back about a U visa or a VAWA application. And, you know, the failure of Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform has meant that people who have DACA have just been, you know, in like living their lives in like two year increments because they just don't know what's going to happen to this discretionary program. So I really appreciate you hiding all that, Paulina. Um, those are all the questions that I had, although I do like to end on a positive note. So I wanted to ask <laughs> if everybody could share what has given you life lately. Well, classes have just started and I actually really appreciate the enthusiasm of the one L's, you know, they're coming in and they're just so excited about their future as lawyers and they're still not tainted. And there's, you can tell the difference between a first semester one L and, you know, a um, third semester <laughs> two L something changes, but the, uh, I'm teaching the one L's and, and I don't know, like their, their energy just kind of gives me energy. And also like somewhere in there, like, I just, I want to believe that their experience will be, you know, different and hopefully better than mine was. And uh, as as a result of that, like there's, I don't know, some good that someone will see someday. So there's my uh, positive vibe. Yeah, I I feel the same. I think like, you know, even though I had some I had some great experiences like the clinic overall, you know, the teaching, the students, the clients, everything was great, but it was really isolating being um, at Ohio State and and moving there for a year. And I, um, you know, my fiance, now husband was still in Arizona. It was just really, really isolating. And I think going to Portugal and, and being on this panel was like, it was like, I needed that so much. It was so refreshing, you know, to um, talk with people who really make you, it was like the antidote to that isolation. It was like the exact like antidote to that. So that was, you know, it was about a month ago, but I still feel good about it. <laughs> and, um, and then also I, um, my bio said I was a deportation defense attorney, but I'm actually um, transitioning to criminal defense in about a week. Yeah. A week from Monday I start. So I'm, I'm excited about that. It was, a, it was hard to make that decision, you know, because once you become an expert in something, it's hard to be like, no, I'm going to go like start over on something I'm totally not an expert in. Um, but I'm actually really like, I feel energized to learn something new and to just like kind of start on a, a new path. So I'm feeling excited about that. Yeah, I will say we so needed this space and we so needed to find each other. I think at least I needed it. Like we tried for this big presentation we were going to do with like thousands of people. I mean, not thousands of people came to our panel, but there are a lot of people at the actual thing. But we kept having planning sessions and instead of actually like talking about our like panel, all we would do was vent and talk about fun things that happened to us and like talking Spanglish and complain. But it was like so invigorating to do that, that I didn't even mind that, you know, it was like the week before we had anything. Cause, you know, to your question about like, what would you recommend to people that are interested in this space is finding a community like this and they may not live in the same place. None of us live in the same place right now, but um, but we still found each other. Um, but my happy thing would be that uh, to Laura's point about how it involves 
academia sometimes involves living far away. I don't live with my family and I'm really close to my parents. And it had been difficult for me to find time to go see them. But last weekend, I saw my mom for her 60th birthday and I surprised her and it was awesome. And I had good food and I feel ready for a new difficult academic year. So Familia matters and I got to see mine. So that's mine. So I'm going to be a cornball, but I'm going to say that actually speaking on this panel and meeting, well, I already knew, knew Laura, but meeting Valeria and Arlene, like really gave me life. And actually, this is something I told Laura, like, okay, Nami, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I had known you for years, but um, speaking on this panel, I told Laura, like at the end of our trip, I was like, I feel like this is like the kick in the butt that I needed and the inspiration that I needed because like I mentioned, I'm struggling with writing, but seeing all these other like brilliant, you know, Latinas in this space and like the amazing ideas that they have and the passion that they bring to it. I felt really inspired after. So I did get some good writing done after Portugal because I was inspired by all of you. And even just having this conversation again today, it's like, okay, yes. Like, you know why you're doing this. Like, look at all these other women that have done this. Like, they're really your like hermanas and all of this. And so I definitely feel like this space has given me a lot of life. So thank you all for that. And thank you, Yvette, for having us and hosting us in this forum. I love that. Oh my gosh. Well, this was super inspiring. This was really great vibes. Um, amazing vibras. <laughs> um, so <laughs> thank you all for joining. And I hope that everybody listening enjoyed this episode.